Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word, July 19th, Lord. Be with us as we call upon your name, Lord. You are worthy to be praised, so shall we be saved from our enemies. Thank you, Lord God, for being our Father, carrying us on your shoulders, and showing us new ways of living our amends. Thank you, Father, for this day. Amen. Amen. Okay, reading. July 19th. First Chronicles 28, chapter verse 1 to 29, verse 30. David summoned all the Israelites, all the officials of Israel to Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the army divisions, the other generals and captains, the overseers of the royal property and livestock, the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the other brave warriors in the kingdom. David rose to his feet and said, My brothers and my people, it was my desire to build a temple where the ark of the Lord's covenant, God's footstool, could rest permanently. I made the necessary preparations for building it, but God said to me, You must not build a temple to honor my name, for you are a warrior and have shed much blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, has chosen me from among all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen the tribe of Judah to rule, and from among the families of Judah he chose my father's family. And from among my father's sons the Lord was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And from among my sons, for the Lord has given me many, he chose Solomon to succeed me in the throne of Israel and to rule over the Lord's kingdom. He said to me, Your son Solomon will build my temple and its courtyards, for I have chosen him as my son, and I will be his father. And if he continues to obey my commands and regulations as he does now, I will make his kingdom last forever. <clears throat> So now with God as our witness and in the sight of all Israel, the Lord's assembly, I give you this charge. Be careful to obey all the commands of the Lord your God so that you may continue to possess this good land and leave it to your children as a permanent inheritance. And Solomon, my son, learn to know the God of your ancestors intimately. Worship and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. If you seek him, you will find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. So take this seriously. The Lord has chosen you to build a temple as his sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Then David gave Solomon the plans for the temple and his surroundings, including the entry room, the store rooms, the upstairs rooms, the inner rooms, and the inner sanctuary, which was the place of atonement. David also gave Solomon all the plans he had in mind for the courtyards of the Lord's temple, the outside rooms, the treasuries, and the rooms for the gift dedicated to the Lord. The king also gave Solomon the instructions concerning the work of the various divisions of priests and Levites in the temple of the Lord, and he gave specifications for the items in the temple that were to be used for worship. David gave instructions regarding how much gold and silver shall be used to make the items needed for service. He told Solomon the amount of gold needed for the gold lampstands, 
and lamps and the amount of silver for the silver lampstands and lamps depending on how each will be used he designated the amount of gold for the table on which the bread of the presence would be placed and the amount of silver for other tables david also designated the amount of gold for the gold, solid gold meat hooks used to handle the sacrificial meat and for the basins pitchers and dishes as well as the amount of silver for every dish he designated the amount of refined gold for the altar of incense finally he gave him a plan for the lord's chariot the gold cherubim whose wings were stretched out over the ark of the lord's covenant every part of this plan david told solomon was given to me in writing from the hand of the lord then david continued be strong and courageous and do the work don't be afraid or discouraged for the lord god my god is with you he will not fail you or forsake you he will see to it that all the work related to the temple of the lord is finished correctly the various divisions of priests and levites will serve in the temple of god others with skill of every kind will volunteer and the officials and entire nations are at your command then king david turned to the entire assembly and said my son solomon whom god has clearly chosen to be the next king of israel is still young and inexperienced the work ahead of him is enormous for the temple he will build is not for mere mortals it is for the lord god himself using every resource at my command i have gathered as much as i could for building the temple of my god now there is enough gold silver and bronze iron and wood as well as great quantities of onyx other precious stones costly jewels and all kinds of fine stones and marble and now because of my devotion to the temple of my god i am giving all of my private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction this is in addition to the building materials i have already collected for his holy temple i am donating more than 112 tons of gold from ophir and 262 tons of refined silver to be used for overlaying, overlaying the walls of the building and for the other gold and silver work to be done by craftsmen. now then who will follow my example and give offerings to the lord today then the family leaders the leaders of the tribes of israel and generals and captains of the army and the king's administrative office all gave willingly for the construction of the temple of god they gave about 188 tons of gold 10,000 gold coins, 375 tons of silver, 675 tons of bronze, and 3,750 tons of iron. They also contributed numerous precious stones, which were deposited in the treasury in the house of the Lord under the care of Jehiel, a descendant of Gershon. The people rejoiced over the offering, for they had been given freely. They had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and King David was filled with joy. Then David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, may you be praised forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours. O Lord, this is your kingdom. 
We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and in your discretion people are made great and given strength. O oh, our God, we thank you and praise you for your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have comes from you, and we give you only what you gave us first. We are here for only a moment, visitors and strangers in the land as our ancestors were before us. Our days on earth are like the passing shadow, gone so soon without a trace. O Lord our God, even this material we have gathered to build a temple to honor your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you examine our hearts and rejoice when we, you find integrity there. You know I have done all this with good motives, and I have watched your people offer the gifts willingly and joyously. O Lord, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make your people always one to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands, laws, and decrees, and to do everything necessary to build this temple for which I have made preparations. Then David said to the whole assembly, Give praise to the Lord your God. And the entire assembly praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and they bowed low and knelt before the Lord and the king. The next day they brought a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs as burnt offerings to the Lord. They also brought liquid offerings and many other offerings on behalf of all Israel. They feasted and drank in the Lord's presence with great joy that day. And again they crowned David's son Solomon as their new king. They anointed him before the Lord as their leader, and they anointed Zadok as priest. So Solomon took the throne of the Lord in place of his father David, and he succeeded in everything, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, the warriors, and the sons of kings, David placed their loyalty to King Solomon. And the Lord exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel. And he gave Solomon greater royal splendor than any king in Israel before him. So David, son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. He reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. He died at a ripe old age, having enjoyed long life, wealth, and honor. Then his son Solomon ruined his place. All the events of King David's reign from beginning to end were written in the record of Samuel the seer, the record of Nathan the prophet, and the record of God the seer. These accounts include mighty deeds of his reign and everything that happened to him and to Israel and to all the surrounding kingdoms. Amen. Amen. Okay, I thought uh, it's, it's really amazing how much gold, mm-hmm. you know, is involved. Even uh, King David having 112 tons of gold as his private stash. That's a lot of gold. That is an incredible amount mm-hmm. of gold that they uh, they use for the... Uh, and then what the other leaders gave, they gave 188 tons of gold. And here I'm asking God for 30 bars of gold. <laughs> Nothing, no. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they're just chips. 
So I have to have faith that I, I heard, I received from God. Amen. You want to read the... Uh, yeah, I just want to point out that I really, this stood out, it says, I have chosen him. Your son Solomon will build my temple and its courtyards, for I have chosen him as my son, and I will be his father. Beautiful, huh? Amen. And I like the way the people, you know, when they came and for the offering, they rejoiced over the offerings, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, and King David was filled with joy. Well, you know, it borrows the imagination, you know. Who's going to be carrying uh, 25 tons of gold with them to go to a meeting? Yeah. You have 188 tons of gold, you know. How, how in the world can they count so much? How in the world can they move so much? Unless they had a royal treasury where they... They had deposits and they had accounts and they just scribed in their, you know, signed or some signature. So uh, it's amazing, you know. They they probably had a banking system, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just they had to have the gold somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, that's for another. Okay. I like the way you know those three books they mentioned: the record of Samuel the seer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now that's available, mm -hmm. First and Second Samuel. Mm -hmm. But the record of Nathan the prophet and the record of Gad the seer, those books were lost. Yeah. It has, uh, and good, they had three books and one of them survived. Amen. I'm hoping in the near future those books will pop up. I believe it. Okay, it has right here, uh, talking about God's grace, I guess that's for mm -hmm. Romans. Yes. Go ahead and read Romans. Okay, the most asked questions, um, and we're going to read today Romans 5, verses 6 to 21, it says, the grace, what is God's grace? The grace of God is a is theological bedrock for Paul. He never tries to prove that God is gracious, but he assumes it as a fact when presenting the good news to the Romans. Paul rules out any idea that we merit our salvation. Instead, God's acts by his grace, Romans 4, 4-5, our good works do not give us right standing with God. If they did, God would be obliged to to reward us for our efforts. Just as a worker earns a wage, instead he gives salvation as a gift to those who he has chosen. Romans 11, 5-6 Grace is so foundational to the Christian's experience that Paul can refer simply to our standing in grace and to our living under the freedom of grace. Romans 5, 2 and then 6, 14-15 Grace now rules over us in the new age of redemption, Romans 5, 20-21. The Apostle John makes, it, makes the same point. The law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love, grace, and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. Neither John nor, nor Paul meant that God's grace was not active in the Old Testament. God has always dealt graciously with his people. But Jesus Christ fully displays the overwhelming power of God's grace for us. Amen to that. Amen. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 21. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Amazing. 
And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He certainly saves us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus has made us friends of God. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol of a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of, the, of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads us to being made right with God. Even though we are guilty of many sins, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead of giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Awesome. That's, God wants us to range after. Amen. Romans 5.17 Through one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Let's go ahead and read uh, today's study in Romans 5, 13, 14, and 20. It says, Paul points out that the people died long before the law had been given. Death resulted from Adam's sin, from the sins we all commit. And the law was added to help people see their sinfulness, to show them the seriousness of their offense, and to drive them to God for mercy and pardon. When we see the law this way, we can see that it was an act of God's grace. He gave us the law to help us understand how much we need Him. God's law helps us compare our lives as they are to life as God created to be. Sin is a deep discrepancy between who we are and who God created us to be. By giving the law, God graciously helped people to see that. The law points out our sin and places the responsibility for it squarely on our shoulders. 
But the law can't fix it. Instead, the law points us to Jesus who can. It is in Christ that we find these lives that God meant for us to live. Amen. John Amen. 5, 40. Amen. Okay, Psalm uh, 15, verses 1 to 5. And it says, Look to God to shape in you the character of someone who will stand firm forever. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. Proverbs 19, 18-19 says, Discipline your children while there is hope, otherwise you will ruin their lives. Hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. July 20th. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today's reading. 2 Chronicles chapter 1 through chapter 317. It says, Solomon, son of David, took firm control of his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel, the generals and captains of the army, the judges and all the political and clan leaders. Then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the tent he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar made by Bezalel, son of Uri, and grandson of Ur, Ur was there at Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. There, in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. Solomon replied to God, You show faithful love to David my father, and now you have made me king in his place. O Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies, or a long life, but rather you ask for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people, I will certainly give you the wisdom and knowledge you requested. But I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame, such as no other king has had before you or will ever have in the future. Then Solomon returned to Jerusalem from their tabernacle at that place of worship in Gibeon, and he reigned over Israel. 
Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near Ham and Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone, and valuable cedar timber was as common as the sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Judah. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. At that time, chariots from Egypt could be purchased for 600 pieces of silver and horses for 100 pieces of silver. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Solomon decided to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord, and he also a royal palace for himself. He enlisted a force of 7,000 laborers, 80,000 men to quarry stones in the hill country, and 3,600 foremen. Solomon also sent this message to King Hiram of Tyre. Send me cedar logs as you did for my father David when he was building his palace. I am about to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. It will be a place set apart to burn fragrant incense before him, to display the special sacrificial bread, and to sacrifice burnt offerings each morning and evening on the Sabbaths, at the new moon celebrations, and at the other appointed festivals of the Lord our God. He has commanded Israel to do these things forever. This must be a magnificent temple, because our God is greater than all other gods. But who can really build him a worthy home? Not even the highest heaven can contain him. So who am I to consider building a temple for him, except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? Send me a master craftsman who can work with gold, silver, bronze and irons, as well as with purple, scarlet, and blue cloth. He must be skilled engraver who can work with the craftsmen of Judah and Jerusalem who were selected by my father David. Also send me cedar, cypress, and red sandalwood, logs from Lebanon, for I know that your men are without equal at cutting timber in Lebanon. I will send my men to help them. An immense amount of timber will be needed. For the temple I'm going to build will be very large and magnificent. In payment for your woodcutters, I will send a hundred thousand bushels of crushed wheat, a hundred thousand bushels of barley, a hundred and ten thousand gallons of wine, and a hundred and ten thousand gallons of olive oil. King Hiram sent this letter to reply to Solomon. It is because the Lord loves his people that he has made you their king. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who made the heavens and the earth. He has given King David a wise son, gifted with skill and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. I am sending you a master craftsman named Huram Abi, who is extremely talented. His mother is from the tribe of Dan in Israel, and his father is from Tyre. He is skillful at making things from gold, silver, and bronze, and iron. He also works with stone and wood. He can work with purple, blue, scarlet cloth, and fine linen. He is also an engraver and can follow any design given to him. He will work with your craftsmen and those appointed by my Lord David, your father. 
Send along the wheat, barley, olive oil, and wine that my Lord has mentioned. We will cut whatever timber you need from the Lebanon mountains and will float the logs and rafts down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa. From there you can transport the logs up to Jerusalem. Solomon took a census of all foreigners in the land of Israel. Like the census his father had taken, he and he counted 153,600. He assigned 70,000 of them as common laborers, 80,000 as quarry workers in the hill country, and 3,600 as foremen. So Solomon began to build a temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the treasure floor of Arauna, the Jebusite the site that David had selected. The construction began in mid-spring during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. These are the dimensions Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God. Using the old standard of measurement, it was 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple, and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. He paneled the main room of the temple with cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and decorated with carvings of palm trees and chains. He decorated the walls of the temple with beautiful jewel, jewels and with gold from the land of Parvavim. He overlaid the beams, threshold walls and doors throughout the temple with gold and he carved figures of cherubims on the walls. He made the most holy place 30 feet wide corresponding to the width of the temple, and 30 feet deep, he overlaid its interior with 23 tons of fine gold. He overlaid its interior with 23 tons of fine gold. The gold nails that were used weighed 20 ounces each. He also overlaid the walls of the upper room with gold. He made two figures shaped like cherubim, overlaid them with gold and placed them in the most holy place. The total wingspan of the two cherubim standing side by side was 30 feet. One wing of the first figure was seven and a half feet long and it touched the temple wall. The other wing also seven and a half feet long touched one of the wings on the other second figure. In the same way the second figure had one wing seven and a half feet long and it touched the opposite wall. The other wing, also seven and a half feet long, touched the wing on the first figure. So the wingspan of the two cherubim side by side was 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced out towards the main room of the temple. Across the entrance of the most holy place, he hung a curtain made of fine linen, decorated with blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and embroidered with figures of cherubim. For the front of the temple, he made two pillars that were 27 feet tall, each topped by a capital extending upward another seven and a half feet. He made a network of interwoven chains and used them to decorate the tops of the pillars. He also made a hundred decorated pomegranates and attached them to the chains. Then he set up the two pillars of the entrance of the temple, one to the south of the entrance and the other to the north. He named the one on the south, Jaquim, and the one on the north, Boaz. Amen. Okay, let's go ahead and read now the uh, today's study. It's found in, in between Second Chronicles 
1, 11 through 12. Two verses. 11 through 12 says, God said to Solomon, because your greatest desire is to help your people, and you did not ask for wealth, riches, fame, or even the death of your enemies, or a long life, but rather you ask for wisdom and knowledge to properly govern my people. I will certainly give you wisdom and knowledge, you requested it, but I will also give you wealth, riches, and fame, such as no other king has ever before you, or ever will have in the future. Solomon could have focused on himself as God's chosen king, but instead he focused on God's people and God's purposes. Solomon knew he had a huge responsibility to serve and lead God's people. He knew that God had entrusted him with the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. Solomon realized it was beyond his own power to govern well. He also knew that his own good fortune or his military prowess wouldn't give God's people what they really needed. He asked the Lord to continue being faithful and to give him wisdom and knowledge for the sake of his people. We don't have the responsibility to serve and lead hundreds of thousands, but we might have the responsibility to lead one. Even this requires great wisdom, sometimes only God can give. God desires that we care for others. It is important as loving God, Mark 11, 29, 31. The skills and ability God gives us are for fulfilling this purpose of serving others. A spiritual gift is given to each of, of us so we can help each other. 1 Corinthians 12:7. The gifts God gives us are not for our own benefit, but for serving others. God blesses us so we can bless others. Amen. The gift God gives us are not for ourselves, for our own benefit, but for serving others. God blesses us so that we can bless others. Amen. And the other scripture I'd like to is when verse 10, where Solomon says, Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? So that's my prayer when I go to AA meeting. Give me the wisdom and the knowledge to lead them properly. Lead them in what I'm saying, that my words would be a, a reprieve, would be healing, would, would be encouragement, that my words would come straight from the mouth of God so I can help govern my the people we talk to. It says, O oh Lord, please continue to keep your promise. Solomon replied to God, verse 8, You show faithful love to David, my father, and now you have made me king in his place. O oh Lord God, please continue your faithful love to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly. For who could possibly govern this great people of yours? Amen. And with that, we turn to Romans chapter 6, 1 to 23. Well then, should we keep on sinning, Paul says, so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? 
Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the gracious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we, are, we, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we are no longer slaves to sin. For when we die with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. <clears throat> we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead. And he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourself to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control your way you live. Do not give it to the sinful desires, but let any part of your body become an instrument. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument to evil, to serve sin. Instead, give yourself completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the Lord, for the glory of God. Since sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you are wholeheartedly obey the teachings we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to a righteous living. Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourself be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led you into deeper into sin. Now you must give yourself to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will be become so then you will become holy. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God. We are winning by God's grace. Why? Because we have faith, courage, and enthusiasm. We are winning by God's grace. Why? Because we have faith, courage, and enthusiasm. Hallelujah. Okay, today's study, Romans 6.23 and 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord.
Consider how foolish it would be to receive a gift given out of love and then offer to pay for it. A gift cannot be purchased by the person receiving it. Accepting it with gratitude makes it a lot more sense. Eternal life is God's gift to each of us, not something of our own doing. Titus 3.5 It is a gift. Then it is not something that we earn or something we must be paid back. From this perspective, our response to God is love. We can express our love to God in so many ways. Trust and obedience, worship and serving, mercy and compassion, giving and rejoicing. Let me say that again. From this perspective that we have received the gift, our response to God is love. It's a natural response of love. And we can express our love in many ways to God. We can express it in trust, loyalty, obedience, heartfelt service, praising, worshiping, giving mercy and compassion, being merciful and loyal, I said, giving and rejoicing. We don't do these things for in order to be worthy of God's gift or to get more or even giving money to get more money. We do these things because there are characteristics of a life of God. God's a giver, so we are givers. We are his children. Okay, what's the most asked question in life? What do people, that will, they say, how do we put all, all the old life and put on the new life? How do we do it? When people become believers in Christ, they are joined to Jesus Christ and begin to share in his experience and benefits, including his death and resurrection. Their old life dies with Christ, and, the, and they rise to new life by his power within them. This is all the work of God, who transforms them by his spirit. Their minds are renewed, their desires and actions change, and their lives begin to reflect the fruit of the spirit, Romans 12, 2, Galatians 5, 22, 23. They become different people, gradu gradually growing in the likeness of Christ. Believers are also responsible for living out Christ's death and resurrection. See Philippians 3, 10, 14. They are to turn away from their old life that was full of darkness and embrace a new life full of light. Ephesians 4, 17 through 5, 20. Using the imagery of clothing, Paul calls believers to throw off the old sinful life driven by the devil and put on a new life, pure life, directed by the Holy Spirit. As they do so, they recognize their reliance on God's grace and power. Believers must actively turn from their old lives to live in a new way that pleases God. It is God's gracious working in their hearts that gives them the desire and power to do so. Amen. Okay, well, praise God. The Holy Spirit's been given into our hearts, and we respond with sincere obedience. Amen. Praying the Psalms, reflect on all the good things God has given to you, including himself. Thank him for the hope of living with this forever. Thank you, Lord, for the hope I have in living with you forever. Psalm 16, 1 through 11. Keep me safe, O God, for I have come to you for refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. The godly people in the land are in my truest, true heroes. I take pleasure in them. 
trouble multiplies for those who chase after other gods. I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or you speak the names of their gods. Lord, you alone are my inheritance, my cup of blessing. You guard all that is mine. The land you have given me is a pleasant land. What a wonderful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is at right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad, and I rejoice. My body rests in safety, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy ones to rot in the grave. You show me the ways of life. Grant me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Amen. Proverbs 19:20-21. Give, get all the advice and instruction you can. Get all the advice and instruction you can. Get all the advice by reading books, attending seminars, by listening, by asking questions, by being a student, by asking God to, to give you new instructions daily. So you will be wise the rest of your life. Hallelujah. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose that will prevail. A man can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose, that is what prevails. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we lift up this word to you, Lord. We come to your gates with thanksgiving, Father, and with a boldness to receive uh, open heavens on your word, Lord. We just thank you for today, Lord. We thank you for... Um, the walk that we took this morning. We thank you that you're guiding our steps, even in transactions, Lord. We ask you to bless this time. Show us Jesus in the scriptures, Lord. Um, Father, we just we just want to know and increase our revelation knowledge of Jesus and all that he's promised us, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Second Chronicles 4, 1. Just 6, 11. On top of this... Let's start over? No, just put it up here because you're going to make a lot of noise if it's on oh. your lap. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, okay. There you go. start again. That's good. Fine, fine. It's good. Match mine. Okay. <laughs> okay, Second Chronicles 4, 1 to 6, 11, please. Okay. Solomon also made a bronze altar 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet high. Then he cast a great round basin, 15 feet across from rim to rim, called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. It was encircled just below its rim by two rows of figures that resembled oxen. There were about six oxen per foot, all the way around, and they were cast as part of the basin. The sea was placed on a base of 12 bronze oxen all facing outward, three faced north, three faced west, three faced south, and three faced east, and the sea rested on them. The walls of the sea were about three inches thick, and its rim flared out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom. It could hold about 16,500 gallons of water. 
He also made ten small basins for washing the utensils for the burnt offerings. He set five on the south side and five on the north. But the priests washed themselves in the sea. He then cast ten gold lampstands according to the specification that had been given, and he put them in the temple. Five were placed against the south wall, and five were placed against the north wall. He also built ten tables and placed them in the temple, five along the south wall and five along the north wall. Then he molded a hundred gold basins. He then built a courtyard for the priests and also the larger outer courtyard. He also, or he made doors for the courtyard entrances and overlaid them with bronze. The great bronze basin called the sea was placed near the southeast corner of the temple. Haram Abai also, uh, also made the necessary wash basins, shovels, and bowls. So at last, Haram Abai completed everything King Solomon had assigned him to make for the temple of God. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two networks of interwoven chains that decorated the capitals, the 400 pomegranates, pomegranates that hung from the chains on the capitals, two rows of pomegranates for each of the chain, networks that decorated the capitals on top of the pillars, the water carts holding the basins, the sea and the twelve oxen under it, the ash buckets, the shovels, the meat hooks, and all the related articles. Harambai, Haramabai made all these things of burnished bronze for the temple of the Lord, just as, the king, just as King Solomon had directed. The king had them cast in clay moles in the Jordan Valley between Sakoth and Zarethan. Solomon used such great quantities of bronze that its weight could not be determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings for the temple of God. The gold altar, the tables for the bread of presence, the lampstands and their lamps of solid gold to burn in front of the most high place as prescribed. The flower decorations, lamps and tongs, all of the purest gold. The lamp snuffers, bowls, dishes and incense burners, all of solid gold. The doors for the entrances to the most holy place and the main room of the temple overlaid with gold. So Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles. And he stored them in the treasuries of the temple of God. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads and four tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of Israel. They were to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. So all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the annual festival of shelters, which is held in early autumn. When all the elders of the Israel arrived, the Levites picked up the Ark. The priests and the Levites brought up the Ark along with the special tent and all the sacred items that had been in it. There before the ark, King Solomon and the entire community of Israel sacrificed so many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. Then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. 
The cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the temple's main room, the holy place, but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in, at, in it at Mount Sinai where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left Egypt. Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. And the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Hermon, Jeduthun, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. They were joined by 120 priests who were playing trumpets. The trumpeteers and singers performed together in unison to pray and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. He is good. His faithful love endures forever. He is good, his faithful love endures forever. He is good, his faithful love endures forever. Amen. Okay. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud. From the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. Then Solomon prayed, O Lord, you have said that you would live in a thick cloud of darkness. Now I have built a glorious temple for you, a place where you can live forever. Then the king turned around to the entire community of Israel, standing before him, and gave this blessing. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept his promise he made to my father David. For he told my father from the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have never chosen a city among any of the tribes of Israel as the place where a temple should be built to my honor my name. Nor have I chosen a king to lead my people Israel. But now I've chosen Jerusalem as the place for my name to be honored, and I have chosen David to be king over my people Israel. Then Solomon said, My father David wanted to build this temple to honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord told him, You wanted to build the temple to honor my name. Your intention is good, but you are not the one to do it. One of your own sons will build the temple to honor me. And now the Lord has fulfilled the promise he made, for I have become king in my father's place, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. I have built this temple to honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark, which contains no... the which contains the covenant that the Lord made with the people of Israel. Amen. Amen. So I'll, I'll read the study also. Second Chronicles 5, 1-14 Everything about the temple drew people's attention to God. The Ten Commandments were kept in the temple, so the temple kept the people focused upon God's kingdom rather than on kings. Um, king's Exploits the temple also centralized worship and ensured that faithful worship would be kept intact. Through many generations, the temple's beautiful atmosphere inspired respect and awe for God. It reminded them that life was spiritual, not just physical. The temple's design, furniture, and customs were object lessons for all the people 
reminding them of the seriousness of sin, the penalty of sin, and their need for forgiveness. Wow. The temple's design, furniture, and customs were object lessons for all the people, reminding them of the seriousness of sin, the penalty of sin, and their need for forgiveness. In the temple, people could spend time in prayer to God, Isaiah 56, 7. It was a place where God was especially present with his people. The prophets had many visions there. The first service at the temple did just that. The people honored God and acknowledged his presence and goodness. In the same way, true worship begins when we are focused focus on God. When we focus on God. The more we know God, the more we are compelled to worship him. Recalling God's love and mercy, justice and power will inspire you daily to worship him. What inspires you to focus on who God is? Amen. Okay. So one of the things I like right away is just how everything was made of gold. Everything, the overlay was, everything was gold. Everything was gold. Amazing how wealthy, you know, uh, the, the people, or Solomon was. Um, and also the instruction to build it in gold. Um, but it says here in 18, in, uh, it says, Solomon used such great quantities of bronze that its weight could not be determined. That's when the, the bronze. But it's, they used so much, they couldn't determine how much. It was so much, abundance. And then over here, again, they were, when they were talking about when they came, the entire community of Israel sacrificed many sheep, goats, and cattle that no one could keep count. So there was a lot going on here at this temple. And... Um, so it's, it's awesome how beautiful temple. God kept his promise. He said that you know, his son would uh, build the temple. Mm -hmm. I get right here where it said, uh, the priests washed themselves, but the priests washed themselves in the sea. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He also made ten smaller basins for washing the utensils for the burnt offerings. He set five in the south. No amazing, uh, the priests washed themselves in the sea. I wonder if they washed their whole cell. It was the size of a pool. Yeah, I was. It seems massive. Very, yeah, very massive. A yeah. three inches thick, incredible amount of uh, of that metal. And then at the bottom, he then he molded a hundred gold basins. I think the four hundred pomegranates are the ones that that go around on the uh, like this around the uh, uh -huh. you know like decorations, mm -hmm. small ones. It's just an amazing way. I like the way the. Uh, the description says that, you know, every furniture, like, says that it's a symbol of worshiping God. Mm. It's a symbol of Jesus. Amen. I like where it says that the bread of his presence, uh -huh. the presence of, you know, uh -huh. it's always significant words like, whoa. Yeah. The fresh bread for his presence, you Amen. know, to honor God. Amen. Amen. That's all I got. Yeah, and, you know, um, but it, it said the sea was placed on a basin of 12 bronze oxen, all facing outward. You just get this picture, like, because it, it says later here, the walls of the sea were about three inches thick, and its rim flared up out like a cup and resembled a water lily blossom. It could hold about 16,500 gallons of water. Uh, but it's, like you said, the priests washed themselves in the sea. So I get this picture that this huge sea, this big thing rested on the sea. I don't know, that's the, what I... 
Remember the Babylonians came about and they crushed it. They broke it up and they took it piece by piece. They mm-hmm. took the metal. Okay, they go ahead and read Romans 7, chapter okay. 1 to 13. Okay. Jump. okay, Romans 7, verse 1 to 13. My, now, dear brothers and sisters, you are familiar with the law, but you don't know the law applies only while a person is living. For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he's alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you were united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it, and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to my life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead of instead sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me laid deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But now, can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So, we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Wow. What an incredible scripture. Explain it to me in a nutshell. Wow. Just in reading this, it says that... um, it's sin, the wages of sin are death, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the law, what it's saying here to me is that the law showed us our sin, and had we not known the law, we wouldn't have sinned. But mm-hmm. it, the law caused you to be aroused mm-hmm. to sin. Wow. I, I mean, that's kind of like as I was reading it. Beautiful, it says, beautiful really? I'm all, because uh, that must have been the Holy Spirit pointing that out, because it, it said, it said, so dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. So how clear can that be? When when Christ died on the cross, my sin went on there with him. Then I was raised from the dead with him, as the scripture says. And we're one. Okay? So, um, and now, because of that, we can produce a harvest of good things. The, the Bible says that we're created to to walk into our good works. Once we know that we're righteous, we're now created to walk. 
So, and we do good things for God, you know, we, for His glory. Um, when we were control, see, it says when we were controlled by all nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires. Okay, and they produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, and we died to sin. Well, we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. It doesn't have power. Sin does not have dominion over me. Mm-hmm. Romans 6.14, I think. And that's, uh, uh, now we can serve God not in the old way of obeying the law, letter of the law, but in the new living in the spirit. So we walk not by the flesh on our own works. We're walking in the spirit now. Amen. Thank you, babe. Yeah. You want to read the commentary? Sure, yeah, that's pretty. But I like this. You must not commit. But sin used the command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin wouldn't have that power. Beautiful, beautiful way to put it. Amen. The, the one point I was going to bring up is this last paragraph. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So what do you think that means? Same thing Is it condemning said. myself? Same thing. You should explain the same thing over again. Okay. All right. Um, okay, go on to the Psalms. So we got it? No, read it. Okay. Romans 7, 6. Okay. Um, some people try to earn their way to God by keeping a set of rules, obeying the Ten Commandments attending church faithfully, or doing good deeds. But all they earn for their effort is frustration and discouragement. But when we give up and turn to Jesus, we are flooded with relief and gratitude. Death has annulled our relationship to the law because we have died with Christ. The law can no longer condemn us. Okay, I get it now. Since we are united with Christ in his resurrection, we're given a new life to His Spirit enables us to produce good deeds for God. We now serve God not by obeying a set of rules, but out of the new lives that overflow with love for Him. Amen. Instead of living by the law of Moses, we're living by the law of love. Ooh, beautiful said. Beautifully said. With God's Spirit living in us, we live in love, not by the desire to earn God's approval. We will, we will not be merely submitting to an external code, but we will live by His Spirit in love, desiring to do God's will. Philippians 2.13 This is living in the Spirit. Desi- okay, very good. Desiring to live in God's will. That's just living in the Spirit, right? The will, His will is good plans, good purposes, good destinies, um, good, good health. Amen. Prosperity. <coughs> Joy. Amen. Okay, let me read right here. Most asked questions. Why couldn't the law redeem people from sin? The law was central to God's old covenant with the people of Israel, and many Jews in Paul's day still saw it as critical of how God's people lived. As a result, Paul frequently deals with questions about the law, especially in Romans. The pinnacle of his treatment comes in Romans 7, where Paul powerfully argues that the law of Moses, rather than having a positive effect on people's lives, simulated sin and brought death, Romans 7.5. Paul wants us to realize that the law is not at fault. God's law is good and holy, Romans 7.12. 
but it is powerless to change the human heart. Human sin cannot be overcome by the law. God's law is given to people who are already under sin's power because of their connection with Adam. They may want to do what God tells them, but they find that they cannot. Deliverance can come only through a new and radical experience of God's power and grace in Jesus Christ. Romans 7.25 Through God's Spirit, Jesus rescues us from the power of sin that leads us to death. Romans 8.2 Only God's Spirit can change the human heart. If God's good and holy law cannot rescue us from sin, how much less helpful are all human rituals? that people rely on for religious or spiritual well-being. Those traditions might come from a religious figure or a family background or a church we attended, but none of them can change the human soul. They can tell us what to do, but they cannot empower us to do it. God's law can only provide guidelines in the new life God has given us by grace, but it can never substitute for the power of God's grace made available through the work of Christ. Amen. It kind of reminds me when um, I see families that, that, that raise their kids on love and their kids are obedient. And I see families that raise their kids on uh, on hostile laws and so forth. You know, you got to do it this way. And they don't eventually they don't comply. You know, they rebel. They have trouble in their lives. But love, even raising a family, is better than rules and regulations. Okay, go ahead and read Psalms. Okay. Uh, Psalm 17, 1 to 15. O Lord, hear my plea for justice. Listen to my cry for help. Pay attention to my prayer, for it comes from honest lips. Declare me innocent, for you see those who do right. You have tested my thoughts and examined my heart in the night. You have scrutinized me and found nothing wrong. I am determined not to sin in what I say. I have followed your commands, which keep me from following cruel and evil people. My steps have stayed on your path. I have not wavered from following you. I am praying to you because I know you will answer, O God. Bend down with and listen as I pray. Show me your unfailing love in wonderful ways. By your mighty power, you rescue those who seek refuge from their enemies. Guard me as you would guard your own eyes. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me from wicked people who attack me, from murderous enemies who surround me. They are without pity. Listen to their boasting. They track me down and surround me, watching for the chance to throw me to the ground. They are like hungry lions, eager to tear me apart. Like young lions hiding in ambush, arise, O Lord, stand against them and bring them to their knees. Rescue me from the wicked with your sword. By the power of your hand, O Lord, destroy those who look at, who look to the world for their reward. But satisfy the hunger of your treasured ones. May their children have plenty, leaving an inheritance for their descendants. Because I am righteous, I will see you. 
When I awake, I will see your face to face and be satisfied. Proverbs 19.22-23 Loyalty makes a person attractive. It is better to be poor than dishonest. Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protective protection from harm. Amen. Amen.